up guys we are here with dr. Tom Walters um, also known as rehab science so here we go all right Tom just let us know just kind of give us a, a, a brief background and we'll go from there all right cool thanks for having me it's uh, fun to be on yeah uh, background wise uh, you know I'm a physical therapist uh, you know by training um, I did my bachelor's degree in kinesiology and then uh, went and did the uh, doctorate of physical therapy um, out here in California. And I, uh, let's see, I've been a physical therapist since 2007. So it seems like it went fast, but it's been a little while now. And uh, I, um, in 2012, I started teaching full-time in the, uh, at a small college here in, I'm in Santa Barbara, California. I teach in the kinesiology department. So I teach biomechanics and uh, a therapeutic exercise class, a pain science class and then a gerontology class, and so I do those classes. I've been doing that full-time since 2012, and uh, am hoping to stay in this role. I really like teaching, so okay. I still see a few patients, but I really am focused mainly on teaching now, and am in the process. I'm about a year out from finishing a doctorate of science in rehabilitation science at Texas Tech, so I need that kind of academic doctor to stay in the academic in the environment. Yeah, so, okay. so that's, the, that's been taking up my space, and... I've got two little girls, four and six, so that stuff keeps me busy. Awesome. Uh, outside awesome. of, yeah. So, um, so guys, I want, you, uh, I want to apologize just in case you hear any uh, bouncing or any echoing. I'm currently inside a basketball court <laughs> inside over here at FIU, so probably the only spot I was able to get it. But nonetheless, um, so you have a doctorate or DPT, right, in PT. Yeah. You have yeah. a doctorate in science, right? Almost. A Almost. year. year or so. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, just on dissertation now. So hopefully next summer I'll be done with that. I yeah. remember I, I found you it was on Instagram, but this is when you were like really pushing uh, red cords. Like I don't know if oh, you were a red cords teacher. Or I, I was a red cord instructor for six right. years. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've jumped around a lot, man. I was a PT for Cirque du Soleil. Oh. Okay. Uh, which was a uh, cool. I was on the LA show. I worked in Montreal while they were that they create all their shows in Montreal. So I was I was a Cirque, with Cirque du Soleil in Vegas and then in Montreal, and. Uh, I was a red cord instructor for a number of years. Um, when Oyvind came out from Norway, he came to Santa Barbara, and so I was like one of the first ten people that was trained in the U.S. So, mm -hmm. kind of just by chance. But yeah, I did that for a number of years, and um, just stopped doing that last year. So just with everything being so busy. So. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so okay, so so late. How'd you get into the performing arts realm? How'd you get into that into that setting? I. Uh, Athletically, background-wise, I grew up doing um, taekwondo and kickboxing, and okay. I was a gymnast. So I sort of have the uh, that athletic background. I actually tried out to be a performer for Cirque du Soleil before being a PT. Oh, uh, okay. So the year before, the students here at Westmont, that video used to be on YouTube, and they used to love it when they get a hold of that. Okay. That thing was just shared all around. So, but yeah, I um, tried out as a martial artist for Cirque du Soleil, and didn't make the cut so the next year I went and was a PT for them so I think it was a combination of my experience as a PT I sort of have uh, I came from a um, strong manual therapy background my residency was in manual therapy and then that combined with my athletic background is mm -hmm. I think why I was a good candidate for Cirque so. okay um, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast with you not only because you're Tom Walters and who would want to have a podcast <laughs> with you but it's it's really Thanks, because you're in the academia world and just having, yeah. you don't see many professors and counselors and just someone in the academia world being as strongly involved in social media like you are. What yeah. made, what made you 
dive head first into it and just continue to grow onto there? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was totally in the beginning. This is actually my fourth time on Instagram. Okay. Uh, I deleted my past accounts. Uh, my buddy Vinny uh, Rehab is who got me on okay. Instagram the very first time. He came to a red cord course actually in Southern California that I was teaching back in 2012 and got me on. And I uh, sort of was on it for a little bit and then would erase it after a few months. And uh, the last time I erased it, I actually had a student come up to me in class and asked me why I had erased it. And uh, he said that he had been using, giving oh, his cool. mom some of the exercises. And so I just realized, I was like, wow, this can really have an impact. And mm -hmm. so really when I, this last time of, I guess I've had it for about just over a year now, really the, it really was sparked by that student saying that it was helping his mom. And for me, it's just all about making a, so having some social impact, mm -hmm. like some sort of positive social impact. So I really think, you know, cause right when you're in academia or you're a student, you know, and you have access, you see all this research all the time, but the public never really has access to it. Or doesn't so, understand it, maybe. Yeah, or doesn't understand it, exactly, a combination of those things. So I really, I feel extremely motivated by sort of this effort to try and translate, make a research available, but also translate it so that it's digestible for people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, because otherwise it just sort of sits in academic circles and those individuals talk about it and it's not ever really, um, you know, I just think it could be spread to the consumer more often in a way that, like you say, they can understand better, so. Absolutely, I mean, if research, research is all fine and dandy, but if this doesn't, if it's not applied, right, if it's not, use whether it's the regular people or just in the, in in the clinic then it's just research nobody knows about it right exactly um, so i mean again to have someone like you um post stuff that not only has um research behind it but then it's practical you know and you bring it down to a point where yeah it's still sciencey but you give it an explanation to where we can use it on a day-to-day -day, whether yeah. Whether you've been in school for PT or you're just a mom or, or a brother or a son trying mm -hmm. to figure out mm -hmm. how to help them. Um, and at the, at the end of the day, what it does to the profession and to the health industry in itself, it, it really brings everybody together rather than making this mystified, um, taking away the, the fear out of, out of basically either a diagnosis or, or injury or pain, right? Just having totally. somebody to, to educate, hey, like that low back pain or hey, that yeah. shoulder pain or that neck pain that you're having could be cause of this. And these are a couple of things that you can help, um, that you can do to help you, you know, and that's, and totally. that's big, and that's big, and then I'm sure that's, that's why a, that person um, man, came up to you. That's, a that's another huge motivator for me is that whole, just everything you're alluding to, all of those psychological and emotional things that go into pain, and I think those things are really overlooked, and for a while, I've spent, you know, I came out of school very biomechanical in the way that I thought about pain. That was sort of how I was educated, and I spent, the first few years really treating people that way and um, I think I said a lot of things that were potentially harmful to people in pain back then not even realizing it and so the last probably seven years I've been really exploring more pain science and so now it's been kind of merging that biomechanics background with what I've learned in pain science and I you know so that's a big motivator for me too on social media is try to is, is an effort to try and maybe sort of debunk some of those myths that are out there that really make pain, sort of oversimplify pain and make it maybe sometimes too much about posture and biomechanics and the tissues. And I, my hope is that in doing that, people can appreciate more of pain and, and maybe that 
makes them realize that, you know, helps them maybe have a reduction in fear and anxiety because, right, that is so true. I mean, it happens. You see all these studies on, you know, some of the terms that we just, that provide, that clinicians and um, people rehab or medical providers throw around, those are scary to people if you don't know what they mean. Just things that are oftentimes just really common. You look at a, a low back MRI and it talks about some degenerative changes or stenosis or something and these right. things that, these words that sound scary because they're foreign and um, the person reading it, you know, maybe it's a patient and they get that report back and it's scary. I mean, somebody just asked us the other day on one of my posts, you know, what about stenosis, you know? So you just, you know these terms, these terms can freak people out. So hopefully through, you know, and I know there's a lot of people that have kind of the same vision on social media to try and help consumers not be so scared of some of those diagnoses, knowing that a lot of us have them and don't have any symptoms. Right, so. symptomatic, right. So, so, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it has to do with, with the influx of information and then kind of like Google. I mean, Google's kind of like double-edged sword. Yeah, you have all this information and at a, like a click, you can find out whatever diagnosis you have and symptoms and treatments and all that stuff, right? And But sometimes an overload of information to somebody that doesn't know what to do with it, it's not necessarily a good thing. So totally. having having people like yourself um, on, on Instagram, social media, I mean, Instagram to the platform, but whether it be YouTube or a blog, somebody who can kind of like, not, I wouldn't say dumb it down, but just kind of elaborate a little bit more. I'm like, yeah, this is what this is, and this is what you could do right now to help. Um, and yeah. this, if this is not helping, maybe at that point, yeah, go ahead and, re and, and go ahead and see your local provider. Um, yeah. You just have a little bit more information, a little bit, it's kind of like you're saying, pain, there's, I mean, it's kind of like the neutral matrix of, uh, um, of mm -hmm. pain, right? It's just like, it's not just whatever you have in pain, it's just the environment. Mm -hmm. How you were brought up, or your environment, or uh, your you know your recovery, your nutrition, um, your daily yeah. activities—it's just like pain. Yeah. It's just—I mean—that's why pain science is such a such a big um, thing now, right? Let's right. go. Let's go a little bit deeper into into this pain science. I know you were talking yeah. about you used to be more biomechanically sound, and yeah. I would say a lot of people, including myself, um, it's it's just something we kind of gravitate more, just because it's a little bit more concrete. Mm -hmm. Pain science, it's just so many factors into it. Yeah. Um, but let's dive a little bit more into that. As far as yeah. pain science, what are, I guess are the basics or I guess the preliminary um, material in it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I think about in the pain science class that I teach here to undergrad kinesiology students, I really, it's an elective course for them, and I really wanted to do that because I just felt like even at the undergraduate level, you know, students who are coming out of that, you know, I think a lot of, I can remember when I was an undergraduate student, family members would find out I was a kinesiology major, and they'd be like, oh, my shoulder hurts right here, what should I do? You know, they instantly think you know how to prescribe exercise or whatever, various modalities, and so to me, it just seemed really important for people to have a basic understanding of pain and be able to kind of talk through that, because they're probably going to end up interacting with friends or family in pain. And so, you know, when I think about this sort of intro lecture I have in that class. I think there's some basic things, and really, like that model you were talking about, that neural matrix uh, model of pain, I think is really helpful for people to think about that. You, know, you can kind of think about. So I, I think there's some basic things that people can know about pain that can be helpful, and how you educate people on these is important because you don't want, you definitely don't want people to hear the message of pain is in your head. Right. Like we say, you know, pain comes from your brain, and I think that's been a big shift. Like your brain produces pain. It doesn't come. If I slam my finger, it's not pain coming from my finger. My brain has to 
has to look at that information and make a decision. So that information we call it nociception, right? right. Which literally translates to danger reception. Mm -hmm. So now we think of it as danger messages. Those danger messages go to my brain. And like you said with that neural matrix model, my brain looks at everything. It looks like the context of the environment. It uses past memories, mm -hmm. uh, my emotional state, and the information from my tissue. But the people who will stick only to biomechanics and tissues, like I used to be, think of pain as only what only the information coming from my finger when I just slammed it. They don't think about all of the emotional factors. You know, we know that stress and anxiety and fear and depression can be associated with heightened pain states. Um, that your beliefs. So you know, we talk about your cognition. So sometimes I, I really like David Butler and Norman Mosley, two of these prominent pain science guys, use the term thought viruses. So you know, as medical and rehabilitation providers, when we talk to people in pain, we have to be careful because if we use something that's scary, that can sort of be like a thought virus. You know, what whatever we believe can be transmitted to the person we're talking to in anything in life, right? right. Like whatever you believe can be transmitted to the person you're talking to. So. That could be a good thing um, and sort of maybe have a placebo-like effect, or it could be a bad thing and be detrimental to our, our health. And, you know, so that's the nocebo. So the right. nocebo is, and I think the nocebo is what a lot of the pain research is working on now is that we need to think about the language and the messages that we're giving to people in pain because we have a potential to cause harm to them just by what we say. And that that's that nocebo. and. You know, so I think when people think about pain just from a basic level, kind of pain science, what material, what things are good to know, it's good to know that pain comes from your brain, and it involves kind of three main inputs. It involves psychology, you know, what you, sort of, your beliefs about things, uh, meaning, um, sort of basically sort of how you think of um, your body and um, what injury might look like, just sort of, you know, so how you think on those things. Uh, your emotions, so what your stress level is like, um, you know, anxiety, depression, some of those things, those are all inputs into that. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is sensory information from your body, so what your visual system is telling you, um, you know, most of the time we're probably thinking about vision and what's like touch right. kind of thing. So, you know, those three inputs and how those come in, your brain evaluates all that. And if your brain, right, because at the end of the day, pain is, a, is about survival. And so it's thought that our pain, our brain is going to output pain if we need to survive. Like if it's important to feel pain so that we can get away from some situation that may jeopardize our survival. And obviously, the thing that happens with chronic pain and now is that they talk about the pain system can have problems. So your pain system, you can sort of have like pain system diseases. And so these persistent, we used to call it chronic pain now. Persistent pain is becoming a more commonly used term because chronic again. The word chronic sounds pretty negative, right. so it sounds like I'll never get better. You know, there have been some surveys on that with um, with, with uh, subjects, and that term has a very negative sort of connotation. So those persistent pain conditions are often thought that something's changing in the nervous system and, you know, um, you know that there might be something that the, the pain system, your pain system is no longer a good indicator of what's going on with your tissue. And a lot of that stuff comes from phantom limb pain studies where you know, and that's another huge thing. I think people have to understand that injury and pain are not the same. Like, people generally think that if they have more pain, it means more body damage. Right. You know? So and I think that's a really important thing that you can have tissue injury without pain and vice versa. You can have pain with no tissue injury. So right. if you think about 
people who've lost limbs. Like, obviously, they had a really severe trauma at one point, right. probably, if mm-hmm. they lost mm-hmm. a limb traumatically. Like, if it was somebody in war and their leg was blown off. Right. There was a trauma, but, so, uh, you know, up to 70% of those individuals who lose a limb traumatically go on to have phantom limb pain. So that's a situation, right, where you could be having pain in your foot, but you don't have a foot. Right. So there's there's no more ongoing tissue. The tissue's gone, but you still have pain there. So, you know, and then we can think of examples maybe where you were, you notice like a big bruise on your arm or something. And you so there was some it. tissue injury, but it doesn't hurt right. and you don't recall it. So you can have an injury to your tissue, but not have pain. So it's important for people to understand that pain and injury are distinct things and that it's not this one-to-one relationship where more pain means more injury and I think because I think pain can be scary to people when people have a lot of pain they think something really bad is happening in my body right which could be true like if you just had a trauma that could be true you just had suffered some major injury that could be true but if you've had pain for a long time and and you didn't have a really major injury then that pain might not be a good indicator of what's actually happening in your body it might just be that your brain thinks you're in danger and you've got to have other interventions to work through that and what about, um, I'm sure you've heard this too, um, I have a high pain tolerance. Yeah. You know, what, what, how does pain science come into play to somebody? Is that more like confidence? Is that literally that they have a higher pain tolerance, whether their tissues are more susceptible to, to pressure or environmental uh, stimulus uh, before mm-hmm. it actually receives pain or before the brain actually recognizes it as either um, a danger? So yeah. go a little bit more into that, because sure. I, I hear it all the time. Totally. That's the thing. I always think that's an interesting statement. I sometimes, I think there's kind of, one thing that I commonly saw and I still see um, often in my clinical practice is I think that sometimes people say that because they're, they want you to really understand that their pain is real, you know, because often what I would see you it seemed like this pattern where when someone would tell me they had had a high pain tolerance that they would actually appear to be more sensitive to pain Mm -hmm. than other people that wouldn't say that so I think maybe what's happening just in my opinion what might be happening sometimes in those situations is that they were often people who had had pain for a while and I think they were worried that you wouldn't believe them um, that maybe it sort of you know that maybe they were saying that to help convince the provider that their pain was real was real and that they weren't making up just because it had been there for because right some people some providers start to think that way right if someone's had pain for a long time they think oh it's in your head and you're making it up and we know a pain science that the pain is real it's just that maybe it's not about the tissues being injured anymore but it's something about how the brain's perceiving things that's changing and it's changing how the brain you know trying to work through how the brain's perceiving the body but <clears throat> Yeah, I think there's two things in pain science that are important to think about when you think about somebody saying, I have a high pain tolerance. There's something called pain perception threshold, which is basically when we first perceive a stimulus, a noxious stimulus, or like a dangerous stimulus to be painful. So it's in this research, in research is when somebody, they push on some, maybe they, they apply pressure to someone and they gradually increase it. And then the, when the person uh, determines that it's painful, they would report that. And that's mm-hmm. the pain perception threshold. Right. And then the next one, the next level is the pain tolerance threshold. And that's when the pain is so severe that the person actually physically withdraws from it to try and get away. Right. And so pain tolerance threshold, that one, you can push through things, right? People can push through 
pain perception threshold might not vary a whole lot, but pain tolerance threshold can vary a ton just based on, you know, maybe social influences. Uh, they see this, this is sometimes reported with females during labor, that, um, it, you know, so people used to, there were, for a while people thought that um, it was said that females had a higher uh, pain, pain tolerance, tolerance. So their pain tolerance threshold was higher. You'd commonly hear that, and that was why my fiance they were, tells me, tells me all what's the time. that? My fiance tells me all the time. She says, <laughs> "You're not sick, or you're not you're not hurting. You, you know, you're just a baby." I'm like, "Yeah, gosh dang, I'm you know." <laughs> totally. So it seems like the pain perception threshold actually doesn't vary a whole lot from what I've read between genders, but mm -hmm. the pain tolerance threshold can vary, and it seems like um, there's sort of this social pressure for females, for example, during labor, mm. to not report pain and to act sort of, to, to not report it, but in, generally females are actually much better about reporting pain. Uh, males, on the other hand, will say, oh no, I'm not having pain, right. even though they, they really are experiencing pain, so they'll, sometimes their pain tolerance threshold, um, you know, maybe for everyday kind of things might appear to be higher or may actually be higher because they just want to look tough and right. I think male there's more often there's more of that pressure for males to act that way okay. but it seems like uh, some of the studies have talked about that you see that in females too especially during something like labor where you know you know maybe females are sort of told you need to be tough during this process right. and it's an important thing and you don't maybe don't do drug you know don't use any drugs while you're going through that process mm -hmm. so yeah I think there's two those two things you can think about pain perception threshold so when I first feel pain and pain tolerance threshold is when I decide it's strong enough that I've got to get away from yeah, it yeah so that's kind of like a flinching uh, type of mechanism totally yeah yeah um, so let's go in the same topic pain science first let's go I guess patient and then we'll go more like clinical practitioner for a patient um, how when it comes to pain science or I guess let's go ahead and say uh, negative words or maybe an influx of information how can they go about whether it's a lot of information or maybe a practitioner that doesn't know how to use uh, the words carefully or whatever it is or maybe mm -hmm. just they're in a, a bad environment that everything is just either depression or anxiety what's a good way for them to handle um, that type of overload yeah that's a good question well I think you know second opinions are always huge you know when you get something that's scary or potentially over the information is overwhelming, or you it's hard to understand. I mean, it's so valuable. I mean, the great thing about things like social media now is you can reach out to people and um, ask those kind of questions, and that can help sort of clarify things for people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, sometimes right with social media, it's kind of hard because people are busy. I know for myself, people send direct messages, and I can't respond to all those messages, and right. I wish I could. I'm trying to work on ways to be able to do that, but because you feel bad, you know, people have send MRIs and mm -hmm. they're really concerned about things and I just don't always, I just don't have the time. It's hard to respond to all those things, but I think, you know, hopefully people would have individuals around them, maybe uh, trusted practitioners, uh, you know, that can help them sort of navigate through those, that kind of language and, and whatever kind of reports they're getting. I think, you know, there's also resources online you know, groups who are trying to help people in these ways. So I know several practitioners who spend a lot of time on their websites writing about these topics. Like so blogs? What's that? Like blogs? 
Is that what you're saying? Like yeah, blogs? like blogs. Like, okay. yeah. Like, even a, a one that's really easy to remember is just painscience.com. Okay. Uh, um, Paul uh, Lehman writes that blog, and painscience.com spends a lot of time, he spends a lot of time on there helping people understand pain and relating it to common clinical conditions and mm-hmm. trying to, I think, debunk some of the myths that are out there. So, there are sites like that. Uh, there are other practitioners too. If people want more resources, um, things that I can provide, other uh, people who do a really good job of writing online. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have somebody around, because sometimes, yeah, right, people watching this, there could be a lot of people who don't live in countries where they have access to I'm providers who yeah. have an understanding of pain science. You know, mm-hmm. I, I tend to see a lot of that uh, in other, some of these other countries, and so. Just being able to get online and know, like, hey, this resource, this is a page that was recommended to me. Not just having to go to Google and right. look at yeah, and we'll, web and, and, we'll and we'll attach yeah. that to to this podcast. Sure. And okay, cool. So, so they yeah, I that. think there's some good resources. Then you don't have to just go to like WebMD or mm-hmm. Mayo or I don't know somewhere that's very general and maybe increases anxiety and fear even more. So um, that's perfect. So basically, just if if you have the local providers and have that relationships. Um, Go ahead and find that. Um, if you don't, you have social media. You have like yourself. Um, that's um, even though maybe time is of an essence and don't actually have the time yeah. to reach everybody, but um, reaching out is, is another yeah. good option. And then totally. second opinion yeah. is another one that you said. Um, yeah. And then again, we'll go ahead and, and attach those links uh, at the end yeah. of this. So I'll go ahead and put that on the podcast and our YouTube. Yeah. Um, all right. So now for clinicians, um, I know myself. I'm trying to really. I tell. I tell clients and patients all the time, like, okay, I really want to say something, but I don't. I'm trying to really hard to, to, to use my words carefully, you know. Try not mm-hmm. to use negative connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to really use empowerment more than anything, mm-hmm. but there's some words I'm just like, you know, it's mm-hmm. hard. So in a clinical perspective, in a practitioner perspective, how would you go about trying to avoid nocebos or, or, or negative um, yeah. words? Yeah, totally. And I, I don't think, you know, to me, it's just about how you frame the message. Okay. Uh, I think you can still use some of those anatomy and biomechanics type terms and make them less threatening. Right. You know, I think it's just it's all about that message and your educational approach to it. So I think you can still use terms. Um, I mean, there might be terms like anterior pelvic tilt or like whatever, like whatever. Uh, you know, I mean. Like, for example, when I think about when I have patients come in who have their report from a radiologist, like say they had an MRI, mm-hmm. those t- are not terms that I would typically use with people, but right, a radiologist will, and so I'll still address them. So in that case, I think it's looking at those terms and helping the person a lot of times understand that, sort of navigate through them and say, okay, which of these might be um, sort of clinically relevant yeah. to think about, and maybe which of those can I, you know, talk about in terms of we see this in this percentage of the asymptomatic population. So I guess when you're addressing like the clinicians or any other movement providers who are talking with people, I would just encourage people to not necessarily abandon, if you've got some terms out there like that, that you think people might perceive, if you can replace them with something that sounds more positive, definitely go for that. But if it's a term that you think is important in your practice, I think it's just about how you frame it to people. You know, just kind of think about the messaging and how you're educating them um, when it comes to that term or phrase and 
see if you can figure out a way to you know to make it to, to make it feel less threatening you know you don't you just, the worst i think the i think sometimes what happens to provider to providers is that they there's lingo right when you've been in right kind of a kinesiology related world for a while you that just becomes your second language mm -hmm. and so i think it's easy i'm sure i do it all the time still you can say something and not even realize that the it person. could potentially be nocebic right in the way the person's perceiving it so you know, even just checking, I think, with patients or uh, clients, just, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, maybe they're kind of having them sort of repeat back, like, what are you hearing from me? How does mm -hmm. this sound? Uh, you know, does any of this, do you, does everything make sense? Um, so, so basically, uh, so basically it's, it's education, right? Educating the client, whether it's their diagnosis or whatever problem they may be having and kind of uh, dumbing down a little bit, just really explain to them, hey, look, this is what's going on. And this is what you need to do. And then as far as, and also too, then it's priority, right? Then if they have this whole list of issues that they're having, okay, look, th like you said, there's percentages of people that have this and they have no pain. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to look at this really and not too to, uh, put too much priority on it because there's other things that we should be looking at. And then yeah. it's like what you said, it's maybe there's this one thing or a couple of things that there's not really a, a good way to say it, but then it's mm -hmm. the delivery of how you, how totally. you communicate that with the, with the patient or client. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think all too often we get really focused on di on a diagnosis, and right. you know, people in pain want a diagnosis. But at the end of the day, a lot of times those diagnoses don't really change what you do as a rehabilitation provider. An MRI really doesn't change much of what I do. Right. You know. So, but often to people in pain, it really matters because it sort of, if there's something there, it can kind of re it, it feels reassuring to them that oh, there's a actual maybe an actual sort of cause for why I have pain. Right. But at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really change treatment. And treatment in rehab, people make it really fancy and complicated sometimes, but really it kind of boils down to just moving, right? Like moving and moving in ways that, uh, you know, maybe are less threatening to your nervous system. So things that don't necessarily, you know, it's sort of this fine balance. It's like if you have pain, especially if you've had pain for a while, and you know certain movements reproduce that pain, mm -hmm. you don't want to totally avoid them because you can make things more sensitive. And that's what I used to tell people. I used to say, oh, if it hurts, avoid it. I right. said that for a lot of years in the beginning of when I came out of PT school. And now I've realized that that was probably a disservice to them because then it, it potentially could have made their nervous system more sensitive. Right. So now I think it's this whole graded exposure approach, right? Like if you're scared of snakes, you don't totally avoid snakes. Avoiding that doesn't help. Right. It doesn't get better. It helps when they're not around. Right. But you know, so it's it's slowly sort of gradually exposing yourself to those things that are threatening. And if movement is threatening to your nervous system, then you want to, a lot of these books talk about sort of poking the bear, like you want to kind of poke at the pain a little bit. Mm -hmm. You don't want to piss it off, but you want to make it just a little bit angry and let it kind of calm back down. And over time, that can help to desensitize your nervous system. And, and, ho and hopefully, you know, that should make, your, make the system less sensitive and, you know, it people would not have pain as often or with a stimulus that's it would take a larger you know a larger stimulus to create that same pain experience mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of getting the person to understand and their body to understand um, for example they're having um, pain with a horizontal abduction maybe full yeah. and they're just maybe going to the halfway like hey you see there's no pain there and just having mm -hmm. them to understand and going through that movement and that experience of no pain is kind of like exactly. 
oh snap like okay i didn't have to there so it kind of desensitizes them like you were saying um and just gradually again um building them up to that pain tolerance again and to where they have no pain that's a thing exactly that say. exactly um let's see what time is okay we have a few minutes left um let's let's talk a little bit more to the students right mm -hmm. what, what are things that you see now um that you see that a lot of students are having problems with, whether it's understanding material, um, whether it's application of a material, what are stuff that you're seeing now, especially as, a, as a, an instructor, that you mm -hmm. think um, should be either addressed or just maybe made more aware of? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm at the undergraduate level again, so, uh, you know, the thing I notice the most and the thing I enjoy the most in teaching coming from an applied background mm -hmm. is that I really like helping students sort of bridge that gap between the theory and the applied world. And, you know, at the undergraduate level, that's probably the, I mean, it's not surprising, but that's probably the hardest thing for people is you've got all this theoretical information and how do I actually apply that? So, like I say, I mean, that's the part I really enjoy when I teach biomechanics. My biomechanics is really probably more of like an applied biomechanics right. class because, you know, I'm not a PhD in biomechanics. I'm not a real heavy kind of physics calculus-based mm -hmm. biomechanics. It's more of a looking at sort of a joint-by-joint -joint approach. And so here's the, the kind of biomechanics information of this area of the body, but what does this actually mean to someone from a performance standpoint or an injury reduction standpoint or maybe like a pain standpoint? So right. I think that's the thing I often see with students and when I have maybe like short answer questions and try to get them to apply it to maybe like a case study type situation, that's the the more difficult thing for them. But again, it's not the, at this level in a kinesiology program, you know, it's not the point of the program, you know. So I think when they get to graduate, you know, I teach a class in one of, in uh, a PT program here in Southern California and it's a drastic difference going from the undergraduate students, right, to the these people who are um, in their second and third, they're later on in their PT education. So it's a big difference. They're already, you can see that transformation and their ability to apply information. So I think I'm just, because I'm in the undergraduate world, there's just kind of that difference. I don't think it's necessarily bad. It's kind of their foundation. Okay. But, you know, if they can figure out ways, right, because if they don't go to graduate school, they've got to come out and if they're going to be strength coaches or whatever, they've got to know how to apply things. So there's definitely a need for that application piece. And hopefully through internships and maybe having, I hope in my classes I can share some of that application piece so they don't come out and feel sort of blindsided when they, they decide to go straight into a job. Absolutely. Um, let's go the instructor route. Um, what are three qualities? Um, first question. How long have you been teaching for now? Uh, I've been, this is my seventh year, six years full time. Okay, so a long time. So what are, and I'm sure you've seen um, either faculty or other coworkers, right? What are three qualities of a great teacher, of a great instructor, someone that, I, I guess I'm gonna leave it at that question, just three qualities yeah. of a great instructor? Totally, yeah, I to me it's so much about relationships. That's the thing I've learned over the years is that you don't, look, I'm not like the smartest person in the world or, you know, the, like there are people who know way more about the topics that I write on than I do. I think. To me, I think the thing that has helped, that I've seen um, people who are, and even like the great teachers I have, I have a guy right now in my SCD program who's one of the best teachers I've ever had. I, I think back to those past teachers, it was about, a lot of it was about relationships. Mm -hmm. I think 
you know, actually expressing an interest, feeling, you know, truly passionate about expressing an interest in your students, you know, whoever you're teaching that you really have an interest in them, being passionate about the material, I think is something that comes up a lot that I hear students say that that's something that they, um, something that they notice and, and influences them if the instructor is really truly passionate about the material and you can sense that energy from them. So mm -hmm. I think those relationships, uh, the the passion for the material, and I also think breaking it down, like a teacher has to communicate in a way that the students are going to understand. Cause, I mean, if you've been in something for a while, you could go in and just talk over people's heads and sound really smart, right. but they aren't really learning anything. So I think if you're looking at maximizing learning, that's something that I hear often is that the great teachers are the ones who know a lot about a certain material topic, but they can break it down in a way that's digestible. And I mean, that goes for the teachers I out there that I really respect who teach me a ton. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and some of them maybe are just like 10 years ahead of me in terms of their, of their practice, but they just know how to explain things in a way that makes it really easy to understand. They can take something really complicated and you know, make it pretty simple. Absolutely, I, well. I can attest to that 100, 1,000%. I mean, one of the main things that, first of all, as students, we don't necessarily look at all the degrees you have, right? It's really how you approach a class, right? How do you say, you know, just a simple good morning and just the way you kind of present yourself is a big aspect, right? And then it goes to how can you connect with us on a like personal level, right? Because yes. it's like you said, and I'm sure, I think that's this is how the quote goes, right? If you show me how much you care, right? I think that's it. If you show me how much you care, something like that. It's basically saying, <laughs> I forgot what it is. But basically, yeah. you show them how much you care, then they're really going to yeah. listen to you, right? Because then totally. at that point, um, they're really going to respect you. Other than yep. coming in and thinking, hey, I have these degrees, right? And then coming in, guns blazing, and expecting for your students to know the information already. You know, another, another. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, just going off of what you're saying, it just reminded me, I think another huge thing too is humility. Yeah. Right? Like, there are some people that they, you were trying to talk about all these letters and degrees, right? And that's impressive. A lot of people are impressed by all those things, but sometimes I think that it uh, inflates people's egos and they, um, they're they not approachable anymore because they're so cocky. Right. You know, so I... They're just letters and degrees. Anybody can go do them, right? It's just putting the time and the money into getting those letters and degrees. Right. It's not really, to me, those things aren't always a really a big deal. It just means that you are privileged enough to be able to go and get that education. So Absolutely. Some people don't have those opportunities, so it doesn't mean that they're not intelligent, I think. But I think there's a tendency sometimes for people when they get like a PhD or something to mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, to, you see certain people acting their head sort of blows up and they um, it, it makes it harder for students to approach them. I think students can kind of sense that type of energy and that ego and that, um, so I think that's one thing I've learned over the years is that how important it is, is to tell someone, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'm gonna look it up and get back to you and that it's okay to not know everything. Absolutely, I don't know, I don't know the big, it's a big, I wouldn't say a compliment, but it's a big eye-opener. If a teacher tells you, I don't know, but then comes in the next class and be like, hey, remember what we were talking about? Here's a research paper, or here's a book, or here's a, a blog, or whatever it may be. Here's a piece of, of material that you can use yeah. that you can benefit from. At the same time, again, we don't care as a student. We don't care as how much, how much you know, but it's how much you can teach us. 
right? And how much you can, can share with us. Because at the end of the day, whether you got the information off the top of your head or if you got the information from a coworker or from anybody else, you're still giving it to us and showing us and giving us a value at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I think those are the big things. I mean, that's what I've seen over the years and people who are whose students report like, oh, this person's a great teacher. And it just seems like those qualities kind of across the board. It's sort of like a combination. I always think it's so important to have whatever you do, like in almost anything in life, having sort of a combination of almost like um, academics, maybe not the right word, but like sort of like information intelligence, like information intelligence and social intelligence. Mm-hmm. When you when people who can combine those two things, I think are do really are really have are more likely to be more successful because they can they've got the information there, they know where to find it, but they also know how to interact with people. And I put those two things together, I think it's really powerful and that goes for I think anyone looking who's who wants to get into teaching any of us who are movement type providers who are working with clients and patients are natural teacher you know you have to be a, if you're going to be successful in that usually you're a good teacher because mm-hmm. you you're having to talk with people every day about you're having to educate them on why what you're doing is important and why does so i think it, people in the rehab fields and in the sports performance fields coaches all these things are naturally usually pretty good teachers and then, again it's like you said showing your passion first i think is going to uh, put you above everybody else. Not only that, but it's going to give you the opportunity uh, to really help that person in front of you. Um, what are, I'm trying to wire this question, what are three things you can tell a student um, right now in either whatever program, just a student trying to be, um, trying to accomplish a goal or just kind of go through a program, what are three things um, that you can kind of give them as far as feedback and just um, suggestions um, to be able to better themselves and to really do well in, in school, being, being yeah. an instructor. Yeah, I think uh, I think in school, right, this is easier said than done, especially if people are at the undergraduate level. Uh, I would encourage people to, I didn't realize this until I was in graduate school, but grades are important, right? Grades help you get places where you need to be. But sometimes I think grades, when people are too focused on grades, it blocks them from actually learning things that they are going to apply and make them successful when they get out of school. I mean, again, school's important and the grades are important to get you on to next steps and all those things. But if you're too focused on that and you miss the point, you know, sometimes I see in lectures, sometimes I think the most important things that I talk about are not the things on my slides. It's sort of the the case examples and tangents that I talk about that are not on the slide, but sometimes everybody's writing, kind of trying to write everything down so fast from the slides. I mean, I give them the slides, but they still like to write it down, I think, to try and remember things. But or better yet, better yet, it's like, uh, is that going to be on the test? I'm totally, gonna that totally. Yeah, I mean, like, you just got to, you're going to be doing something like this one day, so just really try to learn it, you know? And so I didn't really get that until I was in physical therapy, so I didn't really truly understand it at, then I realized, man, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to care so much if I get a B as long as I remember this technique because I know it's helpful for this person with this problem. Like, I need to know how to do this later. So I think even at the undergraduate level, if there are people listening who are at that level, you know, it's important to think about your grades and, right, it gets you on to those next steps. But also be mindful of the, the, the idea that um, you don't want to be too focused on that, just memorizing to get through tests so because that material can really help you in, 
in an applied from an applied standpoint when you get out and you know whatever setting you're working in. Uh, I think the other thing is seeking out people. You know, social media it's so great now, but it makes it so much easier. But seek out people who are sort of industry experts in whatever area you're in and try to like connect with them. I think sometimes people are scared to do that, but just reach out to people. Most of the time, people are pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that those kind of if you can get internships or just even just conversations over social media, those things for me and how I've developed as a professional have shaped me more almost than school mm -hmm. in some ways. So I think uh, those kind of experiences, like I say, whether it's a person-to-person -person kind of internship with um, people who are really excellent at what they do or even just conversations with those people, uh, it can really, it, it really shapes you in whatever direction you're going to go if it's all sort of under that, whatever umbrella it's under, right. but if we're sort of in the kinesiology, the human movement kind of umbrella right now, seek out those people. And like I say, with social media, it's pretty easy to find people who are well-respected and don't be afraid to ask them questions because oftentimes they respond or, or you know, are pretty full, so. Absolutely, and I tell people all the time, yeah, school's okay, but experiences are much more better, are much more better, are much, are much more uh, just full of information, right? It's something that you can really, either attach an emotion or attach uh, uh, just a feeling to you, you know what I mean? That's really when you get those, whether it's, uh, like right now, I just learned a whole bunch of stuff about pain science that I'm gonna learn much faster than just reading a textbook or memorizing a night before a test, you know what I mean? It's just having those experiences exactly. and having the courage, having the courage to, to, to make that connection with somebody, whether it's a peer or instructor or, or a coworker, maybe even a, 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 a classmate that may be a little bit more ahead of you, or maybe he just, or he, he or she understands the material a little bit more, maybe saying, hey, so-and-so, uh, can you explain to me a little bit more of, or your perspective of what the material is about? It's yeah. a big step. Totally, I think another thing for students too, and this is something, I mean, not even just students, but all of us along our career path, I think just when you've been working longer, maybe this happens a little easier, but to not be afraid to uh, throw yourself out there into situations that are a little scary. Like, I really, I wanted to be in teaching two years, uh, two years into practicing as a PT, I knew I didn't want to do that full time, I didn't want to practice as a PT all day. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to be in, I knew I loved teaching, I always enjoyed the initial evaluation that most of my patients, I didn't really like the follow up visits. Okay. So, I felt like I was, so I just liked the educational component of that first visit, so I, and I knew that I really wanted to be, I got this one year where I got to work as an adjunct uh, professor and I really enjoyed it, I just, I knew that I really wanted to be in teaching, but at the same time, when I came on full-time, I mean, even though I kind of went gung-ho for it, there's a part of it that was really scary. I'm sure. Right? Yeah. The academic world is totally different than the clinical world, which I was used to. And even six years later, I still sometimes kind of feel out of place amongst all these sort of academically trained people. I'm kind of like a, I don't know, I don't know what, I'm just sort of an outlaw, like a, I don't totally fit the mold right. of the typical academic person at a, Especially, it's sort of like I'm at a liberal arts kind of just undergraduate college. You know, if there were graduate programs and things, maybe I'd fit in, I'd fit in a little more easily. But I think you just got to go for things, right? You, you hear this message constantly from people of all different types, but to not really to try not to be so fearful of failure um, or what might happen. You know, a lot of times we think about the future and we get anxious about what could happen and what might go wrong. And I do this all the time, but you just got to put yourself out there and. For me, personally, I know it's led to so many cool opportunities. I mean, like I said, like the teaching with Red Cord, the Cirque du Soleil thing, like teaching where I am now, none of those things would have happened if 
I mean, some of it was being in the right place at the right time and having a certain skill set, but a big part of it was saying yes mm-hmm. and trying it, you know. So just encourage people to try things, even if you're a little scared, you know, just to put yourself out there. So. I mean, I remember saying this. I don't know if it was in my last podcast or just talking to somebody. Luck, luck is really being it's, – it's where opportunity and hard work kind of in, in, you know, meet together. That's really what luck yeah. is. Um, exactly. And that's kind of like what's happened to you and what's happened to a lot of us, right? Because um, mm-hmm. just like you, you, you could have used social – I mean, you tried social media four times, mm-hmm. right? And it took you mm-hmm. to the fourth time and somebody talking to you and just kind of giving you a little bit more of like a bump and telling you, hey, like, you, need, you know, you can really do this. And it took mm-hmm. you for the student to tell you, hey, like, I really benefited from it. And you're like, you know what? I'm really going to try and get into it. And here you are, you know. Um, and, and the same is, and the same for me, right? I was able to do a lot of things that I've, I've reached to this point, um, including this podcast, and just to, mm-hmm. to start it. It just, mm-hmm. takes, it just takes people just to start it, you know, and just have, have faith and courage in, in their abilities and, and their vision and what they really yeah. want to do. So, yeah. yeah so. I couldn't agree more, man. That's like, I mean, just I'm sure, like, with you doing this podcast, like, you've got to reach out to people all the time and ask them to do stuff. And, yeah. right, you're in grad school right now and taking on all these things. So, I mean, all that stuff to me is just like, like you say, I mean, sometimes it's kind of like luck is a combination of being in the right place, but you've also got to have that skill set to back it up because just being in the right place doesn't do it for you. Absolutely. You got to have the skill set. So, you know, I think students, you know, students listening to this, they've got to put in their time and build their skill set, whatever that, whatever field they're in and whatever that means for them. But then um, when that opportunity comes knocking, don't be afraid to jump on it and go for something. So, Awesome. Tom, I think that's a perfect way to end it. I actually had to leave the the court. They started. <laughs> I think full practice started, and I was like, okay, I had to. Yeah. So I ended I ended the live a little earlier, but nonetheless, yeah. we got some really good stuff. I just want to thank awesome, you again. Um, yeah. This was awesome. Hold up.